Hey guys, Luke Mahalik here. Welcome to the DFD or Dairy Farming Discussions podcast. Here, we want to discuss all things dairy farming. This podcast is about getting information out that is going to help your dairy operations succeed. Our goal is to bring you timely information on beneficial topics. We plan to bring in some of the top names from the industry to share on the topics they have studied and more importantly, are passionate about sharing with you, the listeners. I hope everyone enjoys this week's episode and thanks for listening. Hey everybody, welcome back to the uh, DFD podcast and this lovely uh, October afternoon. A very special guest this afternoon, Kristen Benke, who is the Director of Economics and Policy Development with the Dairy Farmers Ontario. And uh, I've heard Kristen speak before and she did a really great job. So I thought she would be a uh, great candidate to come on the uh, DFD podcast and talk to us a little bit about how milk is priced here in Ontario. So I'll let you take it away, Kristen. So I started with uh, Dairy Farmers of Ontario uh, just over 11 years ago now. So I grew up in Eastern Ontario in the uh, lovely Stormont County um, and came to Toronto to start working for uh, DFO. So I had gone to uh, Queens for economics as my undergrad. And then uh, when I started at DFO, I um, worked in the production division. So with uh, producers and then moved over to economics and, and took some time to go to Guelph to finish my master's and came back. So I've been doing a lot of pricing stuff, lots of policy uh, sort of national discussions and getting more into that in the last little while. So it's been really fun. It sounds like you've got going a lot on. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like you've got a whole lot on your plate there. And I know yeah. uh, with kind of the, some of these trade deals and things like that, I can imagine that adds a little bit of extra, extra stress and stuff to, to your uh, career. Well, it definitely keeps it interesting. We're never bored. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll get right into it. So I was just wondering, like, how is like from a broad uh, overview, like a helicopter view almost. Yeah. How is milk priced in Ontario? Yeah, sure. So uh, we have uh, classes of milk basically. So processors are charged uh, prices. So we could say overall we have basically four classes of milk. Um, so this is actually the same model that they have in the US. Um, and it's a very similar model in a lot of the other big dairy uh, producing countries around the world. So the idea being your class one milk is your fluid milk. It's sort of your highest priced uh, milk. Um, it's where you sort of from a market perspective, you can get the highest return. Um, it's also a fresh product. So in terms of uh, from a processing perspective, they want that milk on demand when they want it and they want to be able to adjust it. And so there's a premium associated with that. And then as we go down, class two is yogurt and ice cream. So again, on demand, not as storable, but more storable, let's say, than fluid milk. And then class three, again, a lower price, so cheese. And then class four would be our butter and powders now. So again, those are the basically the same structure as the US. Uh, the, the addition that we have in Canada is class five, uh, which is really for further processed uh, products. So meaning if you took uh, cheese from class three and you put it on a frozen pizza, it's now actually for a different market that actually where the borders are open. And so as a result of that, uh, we go with more competitive pricing on those products that are competing directly with uh, imports. So in that case, uh, that that is no longer priced at maybe our Canadian domestic price, but it's actually competitive with what the U.S. pricing is on on a similar product. So would I be correct in thinking that that's more of a replacement for what was Class 7? 
or nope, is that a totally we, different thing? Actually, yeah, so that's actually a totally different thing. So class five, we've actually had uh, since, oh, I'm going to give the wrong year now, but it's, it's early 2000s, 2003, I believe. Uh, is when we started that. So, and that that class is really just around those further processed products. So, uh, cheese for pizza, or cheese for frozen lasagna, or if you took like uh, milk for cakes, or or um, yogurt for pastries. Like, it's all those sorts of products where the border is open on those. Uh, class seven is really when we talk about powders specifically. So, um, obviously, it's we had to get rid of that with the Kuzma uh, deal. But before that, the idea was uh, your skim milk powder, or your milk protein concentrate, or any of those sort of powdered ingredients that are actually uh, usually used to make other products, um, that those we would be competitively priced on as well. So uh, now going forward, we actually have sort of more of this similar structure to the way the U.S. is, where those products are in class four, and we've eliminated class seven entirely. Okay. And so what are some of maybe the outside influences on the milk price? Like how, like, like I know it used to be partly cost production and then there's some U.S.-based pricing mm-hmm. and things like that. So can you maybe explain to the listeners yeah. on the different areas that milk is priced? Yeah. So, so when we, uh, so based on a, on a month to month basis in Ontario, we charge processors those, those different class prices based on whatever it is that they've made that month. And we end up with this giant pot of money um, that we then share from a pooling perspective with the other provinces. And then we divvy that money up amongst all the producers in Ontario. Right. So things that are influencing it, when we look at like class one to four, it's very stable. So in terms of our domestic price, the price changes once a year. Um, and that price adjustment that happens once a year is where we look at uh, it's 50% based on the cost of production and 50% based on inflation. So really, uh, when we look at what is the revenue from that class one to four, the idea is your revenue should be coming really close to what your cost of production is. So that's where um, that formula comes in is adjusting those prices. Where we, so I'm gonna say that part is fairly stable. There's a little bit of seasonality around like, maybe you sell a little bit more fluid milk in the fall and you sell a little bit more um, cheese or butter in January, uh, just because of, of the seasonality around production versus the market, right? So your produ- production is generally a little bit lower in the fall and a little bit higher in the spring versus the market where the demand for fluid milk is a little bit higher in the fall when kids go back to school. This year is a little bit weird, but in general. And so as a result of that, because that class one price is a little bit higher, you end up with a little bit of monthly variation. But for the most part, I would say that part is pretty stable. So the part that adds in more variability on a month to month basis, and I think the last like seven months through COVID have kind of highlighted that, is when we get into that world price uh, aspect of it, and as well as when we start to get into situations where we're in surplus, right? So disposing of skin milk or finding like really um, low priced animal feed markets for that skim milk is where you start to see a little bit more variation. So things that are things that people could look at, let's say, um, in terms of where that variation comes from is that class five or that world price market. So what is the world price of skim milk powder, um, for example? And the reason for that is right now, uh, 90% of your butter fat is sold at that really stable class one to four price and 10% of your butter fat is sold basically at a US 
uh, butterfat equivalent price. So a little bit of variation on the butterfat side, but on the S and F side, so on the protein and other solid side, we're talking about more like 32% of your S and F that's being sold at that world price. So when that price then varies month to month, which it does, a um, $100 change in that skim milk powder price on the world market will have about a 30 cent impact on your blend price um, in, in Ontario or in Canada in general. So that's where um, COVID is a good example where the price dropped drastically in a couple of months and then you immediately sort of feel the impact of that, which was about a dollar in like a, in a one month sort of period of just that drop in the, in the skim milk powder price because of the SNF that you're selling at that low price. And so, and then the other part of it would be, obviously, if we're disposing more, that's going to, that's going to, uh, dilute the blend price a little bit for producers. So we're gonna have less revenue in general versus the overall components. So I would say like that, that world price, what the world price is and what quantity it is that we're selling into that world price um, is the first thing. And then the second thing would be that skim milk, um, what's happening with skim milk. And obviously COVID, we had, a, we had a rough April where we were actually just disposing of raw milk, but um, it, in general, those would be sort of the factors that influence things um, or add sort of month to month variation as opposed to our more stable classes where you just have a once a year adjustment um, to sort of be in line with what's going on with cost of production. So sometimes they'll say like early in the year, that's when you were going to see like we might see a little bit of a blend price decrease just because they are not like they're disposing of skim and just keeping butter, maybe some of your higher priced components of that milk? Yeah, so so uh, January is a good example, right? So every year in January, uh, we end up with the, with the market sort of dropping after Christmas. And so at that point in time, we end up with a lot more skim milk disposal. So what happens is uh, you're selling less milk into or less skim milk into maybe cheese or uh, cream, for example. And instead, now the butter fat goes into butter to be stored and the skim milk was actually being disposed of. Or it's going into like your lower price markets like the, the animal feeds or the, um, the skim milk powder that we used to be able to export. So now we're gonna be limited on that, but sort of those lower price markets. And as a result of that, your blend price in general, that variation um, goes down. So it's the mix of how things are sold at what price, I would say. Yeah, and, and is, is that maybe why we see a little bit of a lag on blend price sometimes too? Exactly, so the, the lag is a lot of the time related to pooling. So uh, when we look at um, we pay Ontario producers based on what we received in the in the month of or in that month from producers or processors, sorry, in Ontario. But we have a one month lag with uh, the other provinces in the P5, and now we're actually in a P10 pool. So with the other provinces in Canada. So and that's based on the previous month. So that's where for sure you can see. Actually, uh, during COVID, April and May was a good example of that. So in April. Um, in Ontario, the blend price dropped by, I think it was a couple of dollars. And that was really related to the skim milk um, or the whole milk that was special treated or disposed of in the province of Ontario. But what happened then in May is we had a further decline in the blend price. And that was really around what had happened in those other uh, P5 provinces month of April. So we had that one month delay where we were then picking up the cost of the other provinces because we all do our sort of share of that. 
Um, and that's where you see then you have the impact sort of spread out over two months or you sort of feel it over the two months. Yeah. So, I mean, when producers are cursing at us, the DFO is doing all these cuts and things like that. Really, you guys are kind of caught between a rock and a hard place as well then. Right. Just, in yeah. It, in terms of reacting to, to what's happening in the market, is that? Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I mean, like, just to me thinking about this, I guess, is that if you have these, you know, these class ones and class twos where they are on demand and things like that. So your demand can change so fast mm -hmm. that there's always a lag in production and right. stuff coming in there. So it's just everybody's on reaction. We're reacting on the farm at the farm gate level and then we're reacting at the processor level. And I guess I guess what your job is, is in between that and kind right. of counteract both. So that's it's really interesting. I, I mean the complexities of how milk is marketed and sold in Canada and, and maybe the world, like I'm, I'm just kind of looking in my own backyard. Uh, but it's, it's, it's pretty crazy on the, the amount of moving parts that uh, have to go into our food system to, to make sure that we go to the grocery store and there's milk and cheese and yogurt and everything else. Right. No, definitely. It's a, it's a, it's a very complex sort of a supply chain to, to figure out, but the, uh, yeah, from a, that, that's one of those things where like seasonality is something that always has to be taken into account because I know people like to look at like what, where, how short are we in orders, right? So processors sort of place their orders for how much milk they want and then we have X amount of supply and how are we going to fill that gap? Um, so that's one of those things where we're always short in the fall and then we get to January and all of a sudden we have so much surplus. So it's important when we're reacting in the fall or looking at what those numbers look like that you don't overreact because you know that in a few weeks things are going to change quite drastically, especially when you start talking about those on-demand markets where they're quite seasonal. Yeah. And, and just me thinking out loud would be like, you know, ice cream in the spring and summer you know, gearing up and getting some freeze, some built up in freezer spaces. And then, you know, this time of year coming into Christmas and holiday seasons with butter and things like that, like just the consumer is still driving the market. And uh, I guess we have to react to do it. So with that, like, do you look at like historical uh, data or do you guys have a model to kind of, mm -hmm. to, uh, to price that out or take those, uh, re those uh, market influences into, into account? Yeah, definitely. So, so in terms of forecasting uh, demand, it's actually the Canadian Dairy Commission that has a forecasting model that they've been working on for for a while now to sort of perfect. Uh, I'm going to say COVID has kind of made everything <laughs> more complicated because trying to anticipate what will happen uh, during COVID has been very interesting. Um, but for sure, uh, the idea of those models is to look at sort of what we know in terms of seasonality on a monthly basis. And, and a perfect example of that is actually Easter, right? So exactly what you said around butter, your butter sales are really high, just coming up to Christmas and then coming up to Easter and around Easter. But the month that Easter falls in moves a little bit and it, and it between March and April and then looking at that. So so to adjust for that, all of those models take into account like when when holidays are, when long weekends are, when all of that sort of uh, seasonal uh, patterns come in so that we can anticipate things a little bit better going forward. But anyways, there's always uh, there's always something that you didn't quite expect, but, it, but that part... <laughs> It's like that on our end too, believe me, like when <laughs> there's so much seasonality and, and so many market influences, like we're just, we're just a kind of a, 
we have to adjust on based on what you guys are seeing. And it's just one big kind of pool that we all have to work together. And I know it's not easy sometimes uh, for producers, but I think, you know, doing things like this, Kristen really helps uh, producers understand on the other end, on the marketing end, on what, what, what they're most going for and what the seasonal influences are and, you know, global influences. Like, is there a global influence on what happens here in Ontario? Like, I know maybe things are going to change here with Kuzma a little bit, but, yeah. Um, like when world stocks go down, does that drive, like say on skim milk powder, does that drive our price or, you know, world butter prices are up? Like, does that influence what we're seeing here? Yeah, definitely. So again, I'll use like a really recent example. So um, the way that our class five price works is uh, we have basically a two months lag with whatever happens in the U for the U.S. So uh, the U.S. butter price basically in April becomes our class five price uh, in June. So what was very interesting in the last little while is that because of that two month lag, our June and July class five price just tanked, right? So it went way, way down um, because that was the U.S. April and May price. So we had, and those, there's, uh, it's further processors. So it's people making that frozen pizza or it's people making, um, I don't know, dairy novelties or things like that, that are buying into those markets. So those people looked at our price dropping and then tried to like take advantage of it. Right. So we ended up with really low prices with people trying to stock up on those kind of low prices, for example. So then what happened was in the U.S., because their prices had dropped so much, the U.S. government introduced different stock programs, right? And so they had all these stock programs come in where the government's trying to buy a supply for butter for sure um, at the same time as their, as their food service market was starting to increase again. So things were opening up a little bit. So they ended up with huge shortages. So we went with bottom low prices to extremely high prices where their, their price was almost the same as our domestic price here in Canada. So again, though, because of that two month lag, um, looking at it from a Canadian perspective, we had really low prices in June and July and people could see coming the super high prices in August and September. So as a result of that, the quantities that we sold there had a big impact. And so that's where when you see the drop in price in June and July, a lot of that had to do with what was happening in the class five market, which was really led off of what was happening with the US's response to COVID. Um, and then again, uh, the blend price coming back up in August and September, sort of in reaction to that again. So anyways, uh, I, that's why I would say like a lot of our variation on a monthly basis actually comes from outside influences. So things that are sort of out of our sort of domestic market control, um, as opposed to our domestic market, which is really easy uh, to see the impact of. So I guess from a, from a Canadian or Ontario producer's perspective, the good thing about it is that we had uh, fluctuations in the blend price of a couple of dollars as opposed to like the $15, $20 that they had in the U.S., but still for sure it, uh, it's, it's more fluctuation than we were used to. Yeah, and I remember years ago in a marketing class and, and it might have been back in school and we were just talking about different commodity markets and milk was definitely the most, I think it was wheat and milk or milk and wheat were the most volatile commodities on the, like through, uh, through the CME. So it, I thought that was kind of, kind of interesting. So I just want to shift gears a little bit, uh, with pricing and just talk about some of the stuff with the new, uh, with the new S and F's and, uh, and how that's going to look going forward. Yeah, sure. 
So uh, the SNF ratio policy is really um, what, what we're doing is we're taking all that money that we collected from processors and we're divvying it up amongst producers, right? So the SNF ratio policy really determines how those dollars are going to be distributed among producers based on their production. So uh, right now we have the no pay over 2.3 uh, for that SNF. Uh, so the idea of that was really that um, we needed to have sort of a cap. We know that at a certain point, the SNF that we're marketing, we don't have a market for, so it's being disposed of. So it was to try to limit um, that sort of, let's call it overproduction or over uh, more skim milk than what the domestic market needs or really what any market that we have access to at this point in time under Kuzma needs. So uh, the new policy, the idea is to really try to tie producers pricing back to what the market is. So um, basically it's up to producers how they want to produce and, and uh, everybody I'm sure has their own scenario on farm. Um, but what we want to show is that uh, if you want to produce above two, no problem, but just be aware that that milk is going into skim milk powders or uh, other lower priced markets, right? And so um, the idea of this policy is that we'll have our within quota price. And so right now, or within quota price, we're up to a certain ratio, and that ratio will be based on what is the demand on our domestic market for SNF. So what is the SNF that we need to fill our cheese market, our yogurt market, our fluid milk market? Like what do we need in Canada? So right now, based on the calculation that we've done, it's basically a ratio of 2.0. And so everything in that 2.0 gets paid that domestic price or um, that or that within quota price that will really be based on our domestic revenue. And when we go from 2.0 up to 2.3, the idea of that sort of range is that's really the SNF that we're receiving uh, a world price uh, price for. So the reason that it's world price is it's the skim milk powder or the MPC or the animal feed going forward because we're going to be or that's been reintroduced. Um, that those are sort of lower price markets. And, and again, it, everybody has their own scenario, but it's just to be reflective then of exactly what it is that we're receiving from the market. And then again, anything over 2.3 uh, would be considered no pay. So that would be the stuff where we can't even find sort of a, a world price market for it anymore. It would be actually disposed of. So going forward then, that world price um, section or the two to 2.3 will be really reflective of what is the revenue that we're receiving for that SNF. So it's going to be changing on a monthly basis, the same as our price does for skim milk powder or MPC. Um, and then anything, and then we'll be able to look at how things evolve and what is the market that we have and is 2.3 the right number or is it 2.25. And I think those ratios will be looked at more on an annual basis. Um, to make sure that we're sort of being reflective, but, I, but it seemed like it was sort of the fairest way to distribute uh, money. So if you're contributing less, uh, less additional SNF into the system, then you're being paid for just what's under that 2.0 and exactly what sort of the revenue is that we're collecting from processors for that SNF. Okay, so like for me, who's a bit of a dummy when it comes to the milk pricing and the milk statement, so over 2.3 on your protein and your other solids, they're not going to get paid. Right. And between 2.0 and 2.3, yeah. they're going to get paid a lower price. 
Right. So it Com would be like your world price. So let's say uh, most recently our world price was a dollar eighty a kilo. Okay. And then if you're under two, you're going to get pull paid full. Yeah. So it's not the, right. So it's not the, so a producer that has a ratio, let's say of 2.32, they'll yep. have SNF in each of the different categories, right? Okay. So yep. all producers will get paid in all of the categories up to wherever their level is. So if you're at 2.32, let's say your SNF up to 2.0, you'll get paid the domestic price at. So let's say that's, I don't know what we've been the last couple of months, but let's say like $9 for protein and it'll be 90 cents for other solids. And then your SNF from 2.0 to 2.3, you'll get that world price. So let's say that's a dollar eighty. So obviously much less than, than the within. And then anything over the 2.3 would be zero pay on the okay. protein side. Okay, so kind of like we're on a where everybody gets domestic price up to 2.3 right now, and then over that 2.3, they're not getting paid for it, correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Okay. I'm just trying to understand it in my own mind here because no, no, I, I guess it kind of goes into my next question. Where can a producer kind of maximize their SNF or is that going to depend like monthly? I guess we won't know until after we get paid, right? Um, yeah. So the, yeah, that was, that was actually one of the considerations for how do you sort of price the milk from that 2.0 uh, to 2.3 is should that be a price that's really um, constantly adjusting or should it be something more firm where producers can kind of figure it out? So I think uh, you could, you can estimate for sure sort of where we're going to be on average for that world price uh, component. But I, I really do think more than it is in our current policy, it's going to be sort of dependent on each producer's scenario as to what his best spot is or her, her best spot is. Um, in terms of a ratio. So for sure, you're still going, I mean, to try to cut back everybody to 2.0 is probably not realistic. Um, but to try to get right to 2.3, I think in most cases going forward now also won't make sense the same way. So um, it'll be sort of for, for everybody to figure out their own sweet spot in terms of feeding versus uh, the revenue that you're getting for that uh, SNF above 2.3. Yeah, because I know in the past, like I know producers that, you know, go the other side of that 2.3, you know, maybe they're sitting 2.35, yeah. 2.4. They're generally pretty happy with their milk check right. um, because they're shipping that many more hectoliters to make a kilo of butter fat. So is that is that what kind of what you're trying to, to get away from now? Like, because you just don't want to have that extra protein and other solids go into, you know, these really low priced markets. Yeah, so that that's exactly um, it. So when we look at... The more, so for sure under the current policy that we have where it's just a no pay, I mean, it's anybody can do the math on that. It's pretty obvious that you're best off right at that ratio or just over to make sure you've, you've maximized. So, but from an industry perspective, if everybody was doing that, that means we have too much SNF in the system and you're actually diluting everybody's blend price as a result, okay. of that, right? So the idea of this was to get away from sort of everybody trying to maximize their individual uh, revenue and then sort of hurting the collective, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, so this way you're, I mean, it's still up to the individual producer where they sort of want to be, but there's not the same impact on the collective anymore of you overproducing because um, you're sort of within that band and the revenue is whatever's in that band, which is exactly uh, what was received from the, from the market. 
Okay, I know this is uh, this is mind-boggling. So there's just so many different moving parts <laughs> in this that, but it's good. Like I, I I'm learning a lot from this. So, um, so with the with the S and F, I guess going forward, like when is that going to take effect? Because it wasn't it supposed to be January or something like it that. Was, it was supposed to be January first. So we've been delayed by one month. So it'll be implemented for February's milk. Um, in Ontario. So we're, uh, we're going to end up being uh, not harmonized anymore at the P5 level. Some of the provinces weren't able to actually make that date. Uh, so Ontario will be uh, implementing with uh, New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island in February. Okay, so then Quebec and Nova Scotia aren't quite on That's right. They're, with that. they're, okay. they're, they're looking to get it in at the latest for August. So yeah, and then so the other question I guess I had uh, along those lines with changes that are going to be happening in the new year. So when's the uh, when's the sleeve going to change? Because wasn't it supposed to be happening twenty one January twenty one? Yeah, so the the sleeve was supposed to adjust to minus twenty days in uh, in twenty twenty one. So instead, uh, and then uh, minus fifteen days in twenty twenty two. So instead, we've gotten rid of that intermediate step, and it'll just be going to minus fifty. 15 days, sorry, in uh, 2022. So August 1st, 2022, um, it goes to minus 15 days and there's no more adjustment in uh, 2021. So, so yeah, so essentially producers have like 13, 14 months to, to get that quota up to that minus 15 days or they'll lose that other 15 days that they're behind right now. Right. So it's, um, I mean, 2022. So uh, we're talking about, what is that? 22 months from now. <laughs> 21 months from now. Oh yeah. Sorry. Sorry. My math's a little is. wrong. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I lost a year. <laughs> no, no, that's my bad. <laughs> okay. So yeah. So tw 21 months uh, to get to uh, whatever that credit uh, position is for, for each of them individually. So um, I would say like uh, when we look at the Ontario position, and obviously we have producers in each of the different bands, but Ontario as a province right now is at a, at a credit position of minus eight days. Um, so Ontario producers are really like very strong production is what we've seen uh, this fall for sure, because normally we would not be eating days, we'd actually be gaining days. Um, through the fall and, and we've, we've actually been using updates this fall in Ontario. So it seems like uh, it's very strong production in Ontario. Um, it's not quite the same uh, situation in all of the other provinces, but I think like part of the idea of that policy was that, um, and we're gonna be going into that for the next sort of 21 months is um, the whole debate at a technical level or at a P5 uh, quota policy uh, perspective of are those credits going to come forward, right? So there's producers out there who have been sitting on credits for a long time. And the question is like, can we depend on that milk or do we need to issue quota to everybody to make sure that we have the milk to fill, fill the market? And so um, the more credits there are, the more of a risk it is to try to issue if you don't know if those credits are going to be coming forward or you're guessing they won't come forward, but then they do and you end up in surplus. So um, anyway, so it's going to be an interesting uh, uh, 21 months to try to guess because there's certainly a lot of credits um, in Quebec, uh, a little bit less now in Ontario, but still uh, some credits to come forward. Um, and then at the other end of that, hopefully uh, we'll have the system a little bit tighter. So things will be easier from a, well, anyways, it's never an easy conversation, but a little no. bit easier in terms of uh, determining do we need to sort of increase production to meet demand because we know sort of what our range is and we know that there's not a whole bunch of extra credits or or milk that could come forward from credits when we don't need it necessarily 
Yeah. So how many producers would be at their, their one month, their max one month? Do you know, like, is there a number out there with that? Like if the whole province is behind, I guess, eight days, there's 33,000 yeah. change producers. I'm going to say historically, we sat around like 600 producers that were in that minus 30 days, basically consistently. So uh, when there was a lot of quota issuance, um, that number increased. So we were up over a thousand producers sort of in that band. Um, and then uh, it's actually slowly come down again to where uh, now we're back in that like 600 to 800 producers in that under minus 20 day uh, range in the province of Ontario. So, uh, I mean, I could tell you the exact number and what they represent uh, in terms of quota, but it would take, give me a minute to. Well, we just have to give the producers of Ontario a pat on the back for, uh, for being proactive and getting the getting those credits back but it's good because i mean if it's the old adage if you don't use them you lose them so yeah it's money it's money there for the producer oh definitely and and i think one of the things is uh, ontario producers uh there's been lots of adjustments in quota over the last little while and it was as we were trying to react to the market right so the market needed the milk now and ontario producers have done a great job of sort of reacting to that and bringing the milk forward when we needed it um, as opposed to maybe, uh, well, anyways, if you looked at sort of the fill rate in Quebec, it didn't come forward as quickly, but now they're sitting on a lot of credits when maybe we don't need the milk the same way as we did originally. So, um, yeah, so, sorry. So this is, uh, this is our August position. So in August, we had about, uh, 30% of producers in that under minus 20, uh, range. And in terms of quota, they represent about 20, 22% of quota. Okay. So in general, producers, I think, are doing a pretty good job. Oh, of, definitely. Yeah. 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 And so you have the numbers here. You know, we're getting towards the end of October. What percentage of producers would be filling incentives in full or partial? Or Yeah. Like I know so, so we had uh, in Ontario in September, the fill rate for incentives was 57%. So um, that 57%, so we had uh, 984 producers. So that's 30% of producers that filled 100% of those three days. So it's a big fill rate in Ontario. And we had uh, 2,350 producers that at least filled some of the incentives. So we're, we're, we're talking about a lot of producers uh, filling incentives in Ontario. Uh, so at the P5 level, so we were a 57% fill rate. At the P5 level, the fill rate for incentives overall was 43%. So if you do the math on that, Ontario and Quebec are sort of the big influencers on that. So the, the fill rate on incentives in Quebec was about 32%. So it just sort of shows you the difference in uh, reaction or, or in milk coming forward and how it'll make things interesting for this spring when we try to anticipate uh, what credit days will come forward from Quebec versus in Ontario. Yeah. And then, so why, like, if it sounds like we are, do have quite a bit of milk in the system, like why were the extra days issued in November? Yeah. So it was actually in big part because of how much milk we have coming forward on our incentive days right now in the province. So um, if we, so so this is confusing because they're both 57%, but uh, we filled 57% of the incentive in Ontario. Of that 57%, 57% of it came forward from producers above zero days. 
So uh, what that means is that if we start to take out those incentives, a lot of that milk comes out right away because those producers don't have credit days to use. And so that was part of the consideration for um, especially looking at the month of November. So, uh, okay, so just in terms of that sort of seasonality, uh, when we think about the fall, the idea is you want to be a little bit short in the fall because you want to use up some butter stocks, right? Because we know when we get to the spring, we're going to have a lot more production than we have market. And so we're going to be building stocks. So we need to be using some stocks in the fall so that when we build them in the spring, we end up sort of balanced overall for the year. Um, otherwise, we're going to have demand issues and big quota cuts, right? So uh, we want to be a little bit short um, in the fall, but the question is like, how short is too short? So we know right now we're we're shorting some of the processor orders, which is no problem, um, but it's just how much because you don't want to end up in a situation where um, those processors that you're shorting can't use some of the stocks for whatever the pro, uh, product is that they're making. So of course, we don't necessarily want to be building butter stocks in the fall. You want to be using that for some of the promotions that's going on at retail. Um, but at the same time, if somebody's making a fresh cheese, they need milk to do that. So in so that was sort of where the idea of those incentive days comes in. And then if we looked at November, and I think part of what makes things really interesting right now is trying to anticipate imports at the same time. So we have three trade deals now. Um, the imports coming in, uh, we know that they were going to be targeting this time period. So that period coming up to Christmas, because that's when there's lots of demand for a lot of those products. And so it was sort of the, the hedging, I'll say almost, on are imports going to come in? Are they not? Uh, what are our butter stocks numbers looking like? Do we think we're using enough? Are we going to be okay for this time? So that's why uh, a lot of those decisions are sort of made like right before, like I know it seems really late, um, but it's because we want to have as much information as possible when they make those decisions. Because what you don't want to do is do something over the top now that then impacts us uh, in the spring where we have to overcorrect. So the reason for the incentives was for sure butter stocks are being used up at a reasonable rate, I'll say. So, um, and that's with the three incentives. If we look at production in the province of Ontario, it's really strong. But like I said, a lot of that product, or there's a good portion of production uh, that's coming forward from producers that are at the top of their credit position and are sending forward that milk because of incentive days. And we know at the same time, if we look at sort of our P5 partners, the milk is not coming forward the same, same way from some of those provinces. So if we don't put incentives in, in November um, and we take out that production from Ontario, it didn't seem like we were going to have milk to come in from other P5 provinces to fill our demand. And then that's where you get into that situation where you don't want to, you don't want to short any fresh markets, especially coming up to Christmas. So um, I'll say November was from that perspective, uh, more of an easier decision. Um, because demand is obviously still really strong coming up to Christmas. I think December is going to be a tougher conversation because uh, the Christmas time period is always really tough. So in terms of, and I don't think this year is going to be any different. So just in terms of finding somebody to process the milk, if we end up with too much milk going into Christmas, um, and then, then we're going to have a really rough time like trying to find homes for that milk over Christmas. So that's where I would say, yeah, we could expect things to be maybe a little bit more cautious coming into December. And then uh, this 
well, the beginning of 2021 is sort of an unknown at this point in time. We know that generally demand falls off a little bit in the spring. Um, but the, this year, it, there's a lot of, because we don't know what's going to be happening with food service. We don't know. We know that people are trying to keep the economy going, but are uh, depending on what's going on with employment rates and all that kind of stuff. And if we're in a recession, there could be some changes in demand. So don't want to, don't want to push too hard, but at the same time, we want to make sure that we're there to fill those markets. So, um, yeah. So from an Ontario perspective, we have lots of milk right now, which is great. Uh, we're uh, less clear, I would say, right now on what exactly the market's going to look like for the beginning of 2021 and where sort of then those quota adjustments conversations will come in is back to those credit days, right? So we could maybe say, oh, we could, we could issue 1% quota. I'm just making that number up. Uh, we could issue some quota because we know... Like, you better clarify that you just made that number up. I made that up. <laughs> Nobody counts on that. <laughs> yeah, you, could, you could issue quota, but at the same time, if the credits coming forward are going to bring forward 3% more quota, right, then you don't, need, you don't need any quota increases. You actually maybe need a decrease to account for those credits coming forward. And so that, that's where... Um, anyways, I... I can't tell anybody what's going to happen because I think we're just going to continue to try to adjust as we get the most recent information so we can make sort of the best decision we can and hopefully yes yeah, someday we get out of all of this and to a more uh, stable situation again. Well yeah I was going to say like it like the milk market isn't stable to begin with and then you start throwing things like the what's going on here uh, or I guess not here just around the world in general and uh, yeah there's a lot of uncertainty and unknowns out there. Um, so this is the next kind of segment of the podcast is we always go into a, a question period. So I ask uh, either through Twitter or colleagues or when I'm on farm talking producers about stuff, but we just talked about uh, a lot of things um, with milk being imported and shortage and things like that. So I thought I'd lead off with this question, but how much milk is being imported because of in, uh, shortages versus trade deals? So there's no milk now coming in because of shortages. So it's not a, there's not a shortage situation out there. Um, uh, so the imports that are coming in, it's all related to trade deals. So either the WTO, so what was original, the CETA cheeses that are coming in, um, the imports that come in under CPTPP, which is really the stuff that's coming in from New Zealand or Australia, and then Kuzma, which is just starting. So we can see imports coming in already from the U.S. So the only caveat I'll add into that is um, those are for imports that would be coming in on products that are protected by tariffs, right? Uh, so there, there is the possibility that a blend or something like that, that would be a specific powder, let's say, really is what it would be for a specific market could come across uh, tariff-free and that those products would come in and that would have more to do with price. So I wouldn't say any imports are coming in as a result of shortage. It would be either a little, I think there's a little bit because of price and then the rest would be trade deals. And then the next question I have is, so what are the Kuzma effects on the market currently or is it too early to tell? Yeah, so um, Kuzma kind of has two parts to it. The one is the imports. Uh, so the imports really, um, it's just starting uh, those imports and they sort of ramp up over a five-year time period. So um, we're still fairly early, but just 
yeah, as an example, we've already had 20% uh, of the butter that's going to be coming in under Kuzma come in in the first two months, right? So you know for sure 100% of that is coming in. So that would be, um, I would say that if we were still in an environment where there was really strong growth, maybe you wouldn't have noticed it the same way. But now I think because we're with COVID and everything, things are a little bit more restricted. Um, yeah, that's where we have to be a little bit more cautious. And then on the other side on Kuzma is really the export caps. So the export caps is limiting what we can do with skim milk powder and MPC. So uh, the stuff that we use to export into the world market, we're now capped. So as a result of that cap, uh, we've reintroduced the animal feed uh, market. And, and uh, so really what we're saying is that we're trying to find a lower price domestic market uh, for that SNF that maybe we would have been able to export before Kuzma. So where you would feel that is really on your blend price. So it would have a, a bit of an impact on the blend because you're now getting less revenue for the same uh, protein and other solids. So it's kind of back uh, like pre-class seven where they were, I'm not sure if it's subsidizing is the right word, but they were putting the extra like whey protein concentrates and things like that and skim milk powder into the animal feed industry. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah okay. So it, the animal feed has been brought back It's a forum. So yeah, exactly. It looks the same as what it did before class seven. Uh, and then the next kind of hot uh, button subject here, the countryside and not maybe hot button, but uh, something that a lot of producers are talking about is uh, the Fairlife plant. Uh, with it coming on stream, how much uh, how much milk's going in there? Yeah, so we can't talk about specific numbers. Yep, that's fine. For, for a processor, that's fair. But, that's fair. But uh, yeah, so actually, it's really great because uh, Fairlife is uh, they've started taking milk. They've been doing uh, their commissioning and stuff uh, over this fall. So they've you actually see product now on the shelf at retail for. Uh, with the Canadian logo on it. And I know that they're, um, they, they've maybe not had the same level of sales that they were hoping when they first entered the Canadian market. But I think the hope is now that it's Canadian milk being sold on the Canadian market, uh, that pe there'll be more uh, buzz around it and they'll get a little bit more uh, traction in terms of being able to uh, sell. So I think uh, they're doing still some testing and stuff on the plant, but they're hoping to be uh, up and running uh, fairly well in 2021. So we'll see uh, We'll see how strong the demand is really for those products because that's what they'll be taking at that plant. So anyways, it's a, it's a good news story for sure. Perfect. And then one last question. So if you had your crystal ball and you could see into the future, what does the, what does uh, growth look like in the future and how can, uh, how can producers or what can producers do or, or processors to kind of help grow uh, domestic markets and more specifically here in Ontario? Right. So, uh, so yeah, we have this conversation often uh, <laughs> at the DFO office. How can we get more growth, right? Probably not um, just at the water cooler, I would think. Yeah, so so uh, for sure, looking at growth is something that's like very important to the DFO board. Uh, so we um, are always looking for ways to make sure that anybody with a new idea or a new product or a new innovation has access to milk, right? So I think like from a policy perspective, that's something that uh, we're sort of reviewing and make making sure that we have an environment where uh, people are able to come in and start new things that will uh, contribute to growth. 
Um, in general, uh, there's lots of uh, there's lots of alternatives coming in. Um, there's lots of uh, imports coming in. So there's lots of things that are sort of counteracting maybe our, our goals for growth. Um, so that's where, like, I think it's just to keep taking those things on uh, uh, one thing at a time. So in terms of like that consumer relationship, so making sure they know what the product is, how it's a good product, um, all of the sort of milk quality things that are, are going on as far as that goes. And then in terms of uh, imports, it's, um, it is what it is. I mean, uh, for most of those trade deals, uh, if consumers don't want imported products, then they don't have to buy it, right? The only uh, the only one of those trade deals where we have to import is really CETA. Um, but price is, a, price is an important uh, factor for a lot of consumers, and I'm sure we'll see that uh, if we're in any sort of recession, right? So that's a, that's a tough one to overcome, um, but for sure just trying to continue uh, that growth at the, at the uh, consumer level and, and in terms of some of those other markets for innovative things, I think that's uh, basically where we're going to be focusing. Well, Kristen. I really yeah. appreciate your time coming on here. It was uh, really great to discuss some of the things that are going on uh, in the Ontario milk. And I guess more on a national level too, I suppose. We're all tied together here uh, in Canada with our, our milk marketing system. So I really just want to say thank you uh, for coming on and, and sharing your insights. We really appreciate it. Okay, well, thank you for having me. That's good. Thanks. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in this week. We really are trying to keep this podcast product and ad free. However, if you have any questions about what you've been hearing, we strongly recommend reaching out to your nearest SureGain dealership. We have reps across Ontario, Canada, and the USA that would love to come to your farm and offer solutions to those problems that have been keeping you from achieving your goals. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone that you think might benefit from this information or on your social media platform of choice. I also encourage you to tune into Keith Schweitzer's YouTube channel, We'll be releasing podcast episodes every other Thursday, and Keith will be releasing YouTube videos on the opposite weeks. We appreciate your support and look forward to sharing with you real soon.